dispatch. Packets of fire all around. Dear Chief, much has happened since we last spoke. Welcome to Dear Chief Podcast, where your hosts and their guests share the 411 of being married to the people who respond to 911s. Take a peek into fire family life and get unabashed advice on how to prevent forest fires in your marriage. Now, here's your hosts, two seasoned firewives, Audra and Chelsea. the first responder world, among them law enforcement. We talk a lot about firefighting on this show, well, because we're firewives, but we want to shed light on the law enforcement world as well. So today we are going to explore frontline trauma and how to win the battle with PTSD. And here to talk with us about his experience as a law enforcement officer, speaker, and best-selling author, Michael Sugru. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Hello, Michael. Michael Sugru began his law enforcement career in the United States Air Force as a security forces officer in 1998. As a security forces officer, Michael specialized in law enforcement, global force protection, anti-terrorism, nuclear security, foreign airfield assessment, and airbase ground defense. You know, just your normal job. It's fine. Michael served in a variety of assignments, including flight leader, flight commander, senior watch officer, chief of command post, and chief of security forces. Michael served all over the United States, Europe, Middle East, and South America. He was also security forces Phoenix Raven with the unique identifier of 1173. Michael honorably separated from the Air Force as a captain in 2004. And then immediately after the Air Force, Michael was hired with Walnut Creek Police Department, hey, right next to me, where he served in a variety of assignments, including patrol officer, driver's training instructor, EVOC, field training officer, FTO, SIU detective, undercover CA, DOJ, narcotic task force agent, Contra Costa County, public information officer, and patrol sergeant. Michael was awarded the Walnut Creek PD Distinguished Service Medal in 2014 for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting in 2012. Michael ultimately medically retired in 2018. He's now a peer volunteer at the West Coast post-trauma retreat, and an ambassador for Save a Warrior. Michael is a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, training on post-traumatic stress injury, and first responder suicide prevention. He also continues to speak at law enforcement agencies all over the United States. And he wrote a book. In his best-selling book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, along with Dr. Shauna Springer, PhD, they tackle the complexity of trauma within the law enforcement community uncovering the unspoken barriers and outline a path to healing. Relentless Courage released in spring of 2022 and has been described by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, bestselling author of On Killing and On Combat, as one of the most important books of our time and the natural successor to On Combat. So this is awesome because you're my neighbor. So that's fun. And that is quite an intro. It's long. It's very long. Yeah. And like, how do we even follow that intro at this point? No, I'm like, uh, podcast done. Okay. (laughs) I'm sitting here going, oh, well, now I have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So very impressive. Um, I am not your neighbor. Well, I'm kind of your neighbor. I'm in Northern California, but not as close as Audra. So I guess before we dive into anything heavy, we want to us tell you about yourself anything that wasn't mentioned in the intro and something fun 
Sure. So um, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was actually born in Oakland, lived all over the place from Hercules to Vacaville, went to a bunch of different schools, Berkeley, Napa, you name it. Uh, went to Sac State and then moved all over the world, came back. Um, I love it here. I don't like the politics, but I love the weather and the, the geography. And a uh, fun fact is that most people don't know is I collect retro Air Jordans. I actually have well over 350 pairs of brand new retro Air Jordans never even tried on. So What? Yeah, I know. And, and I've never even shared that before publicly. So this is, this is coming out of the bag today here on the show. Dude. Oh, that is so cool. Like, I don't even, I don't even have words. I love Michael Jordan. So that's like. Maybe we could talk about shoes instead. I don't know. Right? <laughs> this just became a shoe podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my, and my 14 year old would absolutely adore you because he loves Air Jordans. Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite pair? Uh, definitely the bread fours. So the fours that's, you know, they, they're basically one upwards of 30. I only collect one through 13, but the bread colorways that's known as the original black and red combo that Michael Jordan wore. Mm-hmm. And those are my absolute number one faves. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. Uh, that is so cool. Like a podcast over. Um, <laughs> 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 I'm kidding. Um, obviously. The whole reason we had you on the show is because we want you to talk about Relentless Courage. So why did you choose to write it and who is it for? So I'll have to give you the background story because this is something that was never planned. I never envisioned it. And really all the credit goes to Dr. Shauna Springer. She's an amazing, amazing person. Um, She's a clinical psychologist. She went to Harvard. She spent most of her career working with first responders and combat military veterans, uh, both with the VA and the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And she had written three books um, before I even met her. So to make a long story short, before COVID happened, she reached out to me on LinkedIn because I'm an influencer there and I'm always sharing things on like post-traumatic stress and suicide prevention. She just sent me a message. Hey, I'd love to chat with you sometime and share what I'm doing, see what you're doing. And I said, sure, let's do it. And so she calls me up and she's dealing with stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And we talk about that in detail in my book. Um, I've actually had the procedure done. And during that conversation... Wait, um, wait, wait, stop. Oh. Wait, stop. (laughs) So we actually just had um, someone from Stella come... Yeah, that's where she works. Yeah, we were uh, literally just did a podcast last week with... Wow. Yeah, so so freaking cool. And we didn't even know that. So Doc Springer is actually the clinical psychologist for Stella. So, oh, that's um, so cool. I know. That's it's amazing. like, I know. So to even be able to write a book with her is like, I mean, talk about hitting it out of the park. And so during that first phone conversation, you know, she asked me for my story and I shared her my story and she was really taken aback. And she asked me, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book about this? And I said, well, it's funny you asked me that because I've been asked before. And honestly, with post-traumatic stress, I just don't have the focus I used to have. I don't have the concentration. I don't manage stress like I used to. I just don't think I could do something like that. And so we left the phone conversation with that. A couple months later, she hits me back up and she's like, look, your story is really resonating with me. And I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories, but your story is going to help countless people. And she said, I want to make this happen. I want to do this book with you. And I at that very moment, I said, let's do it. Like I knew right away she was the right person to do this project. And the funny thing is, so COVID happened and we didn't actually ever meet in person 
until like a year and a half after we started this this process. And so we did it all via Zoom, did it all via the phone. And um, yeah, so it was just a great, great experience. And I truly believe this all happened for a reason. Well, absolutely. It happened for a reason. And I'm like in utter shock because we didn't even know anything about you working with Stella. And literally a week ago today, we were talking to them and the podcast episode actually just dropped on Tuesday. So like, this is my Um, So obviously this was all meant to be. Um, Also, Audra and I have a similar story. We met during covid and started this podcast and never met until like a year and a half later so we have a lot wow. of things in common here at dear chiefs like so cool <laughs> yeah. um, and we're neighbors at least half of us and are neighbors, neighbors. <laughs> I, and i didn't even know like you were even in her same area until you sent me your bio so like whoa yeah i literally i was reading it like oh i'm a creek <laughs> crazy. Oh, i mean luckily yeah. you never pulled me over so that's good okay well i might have i, I pulled over a lot of people back in the day no. i've never been pulled over in walnut creek Okay. All right. Then you're safe. No, I'm like, wait, no, I'm, I'm a very good driver. Okay. Thank you. I have a, a, this is probably a really weighted question, but how do you think emergency response is going to change over the next 10 years and why? You know, that's a, a really tough question, but the first thing that comes to mind and, you know, they're all similar, but they're also very different. So to make this answer kind of more broad, Um, The first issue I see is that there's a nationwide shortage, especially for law enforcement, where almost every agency is understaffed. People are working forced overtime. Morale is down. Support is down. And I think historically, most first responders, it was really a calling. I think most people, like as a child, in many cases, like in my case, thought about doing this as a career. It wasn't something random where they opened up a job ad and said, oh, that looks like good paying benefits. Let me give this a try. And so I really think that the potential applicant pool is going to change. And I think if we don't start supporting our first responders in a big way, I think there's going to continue to be a nationwide shortage because, you know, literally like for police officers, for instance, every contact is a potential lawsuit. It's an investigation. It's a potential firing, a potential prosecution. And it's getting to the point where officers don't want to be proactive anymore. They don't want to go out there and prevent crime. They just, you know, want to respond to calls and not to knock firefighters. Cause I love firefighters. And honestly, I should have been one. That's one of the biggest mistakes I made is, you know, I didn't realize how cool firefighters are and everybody loves them, but I see law enforcement as being more reactive as opposed to proactive. And so we really need to change, you know, the culture. We need to educate the public on who we are and what we do so they can see the human side behind the badge and the uniform. And so they can also see the true toll that these jobs take, not only on us, on our physical health, our mental health, but our families, our loved ones. And and we're truly sacrificing every single day. And so I see the pendulum starting to swing right now where people are fed up with crime. They're starting to support first responders more, but that needs to continue. It needs to increase. And then hopefully if that happens, if we get more support, if we get more benefits and more things like, you know, helping people with their mental health and talking about these things so people can actually work an entire career. Because as an example, law enforcement has changed the retirement age. When I started, it used to be 50. And now it's 57. And who knows what it's going to be in 10 years. And so those are other factors that we need to look at is 
for firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, police officers, you know, can you really sustain doing this job for 30 plus years, potentially into your 60s? And, and I don't see that happening. No, I completely agree with you. The same thing for my husband. It went from 50 to 55. Like, okay, 50 was old for a firefighter. Like, even if you're, even if you're a chief, like, you still are responding to, you know, stressful situations. And what toll does that take on the body and the mind? And yeah, so I completely 100% agree with you. And with that in mind, how would you want to educate the public about that? Or how would you go about it? You know, not to be biased, but my book here, it's a perfect example of it. And I'm going to explain why. Um, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to bring down the walls and let the public in to, to get to know us, you know, as people to, to realize that we're not this uncaring, you know, person in uniform who has no feelings, has no emotions, is like a robot out there just doing our job. But we really need to bring them into the fold and explain you know, why we do things, how we do things and, you know, take more time when we have it on the back end of calls and contacts and explain our procedures and and apologize if necessary. Like, you know, Hey, I'm sorry. I had to come off really aggressive when I first contacted you, but you know, I didn't know who you were. I didn't know if you were a threat. I didn't know if you had weapons on you and I needed to first make sure that we're both safe before we could have this conversation. And so we really need to do a better job on doing that kind of work. And in this book, I literally, I mean, I bear it all, the good, the bad, the ugly, and I made a lot of mistakes. But from everyone that's read this book that knew me, everyone has said, I have no idea. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that because as first responders, we do such a good job of putting this outward front that we're all good, nothing bothers us, nothing phases us. And when we're operational, we're good. But when we get back home, you know, we're not there mentally. We may be there physically. Um, oftentimes we come home in bad moods, pissed off, upset because of the things that we saw and dealt with, but we're not communicating that with our loved ones. So they assume it's them. But, you know, what we need to do is show everybody, especially our loved ones, but the general public, the true humans behind the badge. Absolutely. Could not have said it better. Like that's... <laughs> Seriously. So it's all from the heart. I mean, that I truly believe in this and this is why I've devoted my life to this because I'm not special and I'm not unique and this book will resonate with everyone. And that's the key. I'm just willing to talk about it and put it out there, but there's nothing about my experience that is special or unique. There's countless first responders out there that are dealing with the same exact issues. I want to hear your experience with the stellate ganglion block. I can say it now. It's still a ganglion block. Thank so, you. <laughs> um, you know, I honestly, I was apprehensive. Like when Doc Springer first told me about it, I was like, man, this, this can't be like, why I haven't heard of this. This like is too good to be true. And I kind of left it at that. But as we started working on this project and she started educating more and talking about it, and she actually introduced me to some people who I'm now friends with that had had the procedure done. And so I had a lot of discussions with them because I really wanted to know firsthand from the people that had it, like, you know, how was it? Like, truly, what was your experience? And so coolest thing and talk about being privileged, but um, Doc Springer actually went down with me. We went down to San Jose when I got my stellate ganglion block, and that really helped lessen the anxiety. But the procedure itself was painless. It literally took like 10 minutes. 
It was done by an anesthesiologist. You know, it's always done by a medical doctor who's specifically trained in this area. And when you go in there, you're not reopening your wounds. You're not talking about your trauma. This is literally a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And so I remember we went down there and I went down there with another military veteran. And after we were done, we went to go get something to eat in San Jose, went to this very busy restaurant. And we went in, we were sitting down and halfway through the meal, Doc Springer says to me, she goes, do you realize that your back has been to the entire restaurant this entire time? And there's like a hundred people behind you. And I literally had no clue. I was like, I didn't even think about it. And I'm always on edge. I'm always on guard. I'm always scanning. And that was the very first thing that I noticed an immediate difference. And to follow through with that, you know, I, I have a buddy that I work out with every day. He works for Richmond Police Department. He's actually the guy on the cover of my book. Um, it's not me, but it's my best friend, Joe Diorian. And I said to him, I said, look, dude, I said, I want you to just kind of watch and observe, make mental notes. Don't tell me at the time, but I just want to see if you notice anything different. Because oftentimes we don't notice the changes in ourselves, but other people notice it. And he did. He noticed that I was less aggressive. I wasn't driving all crazy like I usually do, getting road raged. Um, I was more focused at the gym. I was more calm. I was more relaxed. And so, you know, for me personally, it worked. And I know for a lot of other people, it's worked. And I think the effective rate is 85% when you combine the right side injection and then the left side. You know, some people only need the right side. But if it doesn't work right away within a day or two, you need to go back and get a, a second injection on the left side. And, and what's so cool about this, this procedure has actually been around for like over 100 years. It was used as a pain block. And about 20 years ago, I think they discovered it can actually be used to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And they've been using it on military people for years. And currently the VA actually uses it as well. So it's a very safe procedure. I didn't have any side effects other than like a droopy eye for a couple hours, which is a normal reaction. Uh, but I, I definitely highly encourage people to look into it. And, and we talk more in depth about it inside the book as well. Fascinating. I'm still I'm, in shock that we've like literally never heard of this. Like as first responder families, like why don't we know this stuff? Because so many of our first responders have post-traumatic stress and they, maybe they don't even know it yet. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm still blown away. Yeah. blown away that this is something that's been going on for however long it's been going on and we've never heard of it. So what, what's interesting, if you Google it, there's a 60 minutes episode and they actually did an episode on this years ago. So, you know, when we're done with this episode, go online, Google 60 minutes, you know, SGB or Stella Ganglion block. And there's actually a video segment that comes up where they did an episode on this. Huh? What the heck? My, grandpa know, right? my grandparents probably saw that episode because they watched <laughs> 60, 60 minutes. minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I, but, I don't know what you guys are trying to say, but. Hey, uh, no, okay, no, Michael. not at all. 60 minutes is awesome. But also, like, if it's not on Twitter, we're not seeing it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> We're very laser focused on Taylor Swift right now, so we can't oh, see no, past. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> so. I want to kind of hear about your experience with BTS. If there was like one defining moment that caused it or how you came to realize that you needed help with it, kind of just walk us through that. 
Absolutely. So I'm going to back up before that and just talk about a big mistake that I made that's related to this. But before I started my law enforcement career, I made a conscious decision that I would never bring work home. I would never talk about the job. And so I was married at the time. I'm divorced now, but I never had that communication with my spouse where I was open. I was talking about my bad days. I was sharing my feelings and emotions. And so she always assumed it was her. And literally she was walking around on eggshells around me when I came home after a bad day of being exposed to trauma. And so fast forward about eight years into my civilian law enforcement career at Walnut Creek, I would just been promoted to sergeant and my life at that time was going perfect. I mean, literally I'd been promoted quicker and faster than anybody. I was happily married. I had two and a half year old, beautiful daughter. We just bought our dream house five months earlier and I just got off our mini field training program for sergeants. And I was literally on my second solo shift. It was our Friday. It was a night shift. So it started at 930 at night and went till 730 in the morning. And it started the day after Christmas. So December 26, 2012. Shift was quiet. Nothing was going on. And literally about 3 a.m., the dispatcher gets on the air and starts screaming like I've never heard her before. And she says basically that there is a man and a woman inside a condominium and the man is armed with a knife on Creekside Drive, which is an area of like a lot of condos and apartments in, in Walnut Creek. And I know the area, but I don't know the specific unit. And as we're driving there, all the units are responding. I'm the only supervisor on duty. The dispatcher gives an update and says, now the boyfriend and girlfriend are barricaded inside their bedroom. And I was confused. So I asked for clarification and the dispatcher says, no, there's a third subject with a knife. And so now I'm just literally, you know, adrenaline's pumping. I'm imagining just what I'm going to see and encounter. As I pull up on scene in front of the complex, the dispatcher starts screaming and she says, units, units, there's a struggle. And she lost all communication inside the condominium. And thank God at that same time, one of my officers pulled up right behind me. But we're now hearing blood curling screams of a female coming from the distance. And it sounds like she's being killed. And so we just start running towards these screams. We don't know where this unit is, but we're going towards the screams. And we've got more units coming, but we got to get in there. We have to eventually crawl underneath an outside stairwell. We get to this open courtyard, and it's basically two-story condos that are attached on all sides, and they're all around us. As soon as we get in front of the unit, it goes dead silent. There's no sounds. There's nobody outside. I mean, literally, you can hear like crickets. We noticed that there's a huge window the size of a door that shattered inside the condominium. And we're announcing ourselves, you know, please come out. We've got our guns out. Nothing. So we make the decision that we got to go in there and, and see what's going on with this couple. So it's just the one officer and I, we go in, clear the downstairs. We don't see anything other than that broken window. Get to the bottom of the stairs. We're shoulder to shoulder. Guns are out. We're yelling. Nothing. Moments later, a male comes out sweating profusely eyes wide open, literally staring straight through us. And we can't see the right side of his body initially. So we're yelling, you know, show us your hands, show us your hands. Our guns are right on him. No reaction, no facial expression, no body movement. I mean, literally, I don't even remember his eyes blinking. Moments later, he comes out a little bit more. And my partner yells, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And we look and he had a full-size butcher knife in his right hand. And now we're yelling repeatedly, you know, drop the knife, drop the knife. No reaction. And then seconds later, he comes up with a knife over his head and starts coming towards us. We shoot. Not sure if we hit him. He comes to the bottom of the stairs. Uh, I don't see any injuries. I don't see any blood. He's still clenching this butcher knife. And all we know is he's between us 
and the couple we got to get to upstairs. And so now we're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. And this other officer and I are literally like two, three feet from this person. And he starts coming back up with a knife. And there's no, no nice way to say it, but we shot him. He was killed instantly. And, and it turns out that literally he had been stabbing through the bedroom door with this butcher knife. The door was coming off the hinges. And this couple was physically barricading themselves against the door, trying to prevent him from coming in. And so I know... Had we not gotten there and we did, they would be dead. I have, I have no doubts they would be dead. But that incident forever changed me. And it's the incident that pushed me over the edge. It started my isolation. It started constant nightmares. I literally didn't feel like there was anybody I can talk to. I didn't talk to my spouse. There was multiple investigations going on. And at that time, I didn't have any kind of established relationships with therapists or clinicians or peer people. I just didn't believe in that stuff because I never needed it or at least I didn't think I needed it. And so I started drinking more and I started having marital problems. And it just really started to snowball after that, where I ended up suffering in silence for almost four years. I mean, it it was horrendous. And there was a whole series of traumatic events, including being sued right away and drugged through a four-year lawsuit where I was defendant in federal court in San Francisco. And And I go into great detail about those in the book, but it was literally just like, incident after incident after incident. And it got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. I literally wanted to die on duty. I did not want to be here anymore. Wow. Unfortunate because you're not the only person that suffers in silence. You know, there's so many people um, that are doing that, that for no good reason, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. talk to your spouse. You know, that's what they're there for. That's at least our, we hope our husbands come home and talk to us about the things that are bothering them. And I guess that's easier said than done, but also so, so imperative. Biggest so mistake what? I ever made. I mean, absolutely biggest mistake I've made. So anybody listening to this, it's not too late to start today. I mean, you need to talk to your loved ones. You need to talk to people you can trust and not bear this burden. Get it off your shoulders because talking and sharing is healing. It's that simple. It's absolutely healing. Yep. Hundred percent. Okay, I am now going to um, order this book because I want to read the rest of your story because it's amazing. All right, we're gonna switch to the hot seat now because that was freaking heavy and I'm sweating. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what is one question you wish we would have asked you, and how would you have answered it? Um, Probably, what was the funniest experience you've ever had, or funniest call you've ever had on the job? Yes, please give me some funny. Okay, this is kind of. Part of this is adult content, so I'm just going to warn you. But um, I was brand new officer. I just finished field training. I was on the weekend day shift. And ironically enough, the guy on the cover of my book, his name is Jody Orion. We work out together every day. He's an officer in Richmond, but he came out for a ride along because he just wanted to cruise with me. And he's like, man, in Walnut Creek, you guys just drink lattes and there's not like nothing going on. And let's grab some good lunch at like P.F. Chang's and you know, drink some mango iced tea and whatnot. And so he comes to lineup and literally now it's like, I think 1231 in the afternoon, we're just getting to the car and a call comes out in my sector, sector two. It's at the Ross department store in downtown Walnut Creek. I think the store is still there. And the call comes out. I'll never forget it. What WTF dude. I said, I don't know. Let's just go clear this crap so we can go grab some Starbucks. All right. So we start rolling there. I know there's cover coming. We go into the store and it's packed. This is Saturday, the one, you know, in Walnut Creek. 
And so I go in the store. There's all kinds of people lined up at the registers. And this lady comes running up frantically. She's like, officer, officer, he's over there. He's, and she's pointing to the far end of the store. And literally I look and I can see it. And this guy was short. I can see like a head bopping up and down from the clothes rack aisle. And so I start going over there. And as soon as this guy sees me, he makes a beeline for the front of the store. So I start sprinting and I catch him right at the front of the store. And literally we get into a wrestling match in front of the registers. My baton goes flying and you hear somebody go like, Oh my gosh, what is that mommy? What is that? And I, and I look at this guy. So he had these boxers on and he was wearing a strap on dildo, but it actually came through the opening of the hole of the boxers and it's swinging around like an elephant trunk. And so literally I'm like in the fight of my life with this short, you know, guy with translucent underwear and we're up, we're down, we're up. My baton is like flying across the freaking floor. And like little kids are like, oh my God, what is that? And so and my buddy's like in shock. He doesn't know what the hell is going on. Eventually another officer comes in and I, I ended up pepper spraying the guy. And so the story gets better. We get him cuffed up. And at that point we had a device called a wrap restraint device. They still have it, but it's where they wrap your legs up, your handcuff behind your back. And we got him wrapped up, but the dildo, like we couldn't get it off. So the, the, the thing is laying on top of the wrap and it looks like a real human penis to this day. You, you would think this is a real penis. Okay. This looks real. And so I'll never forget the paramedics get there and they walk in and they both look at each other like, what the, and then I remember my sergeant, this guy was the oldest, crustiest guy, coolest dude, looked like Clint Eastwood. And he walks in. He looks at it, shakes his head, and walks out of Ross Department Store. I shit you not. He was like, what the? Not today. <laughs> yeah, not today. So and I, I will never forget it. I mean, never forget it. It was like, you can't make this up. I tell people about it. They don't believe it. I should have put it in the book. I didn't. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And the best, well, the best part is, so officers for weeks, they try to get surveillance footage. And thank God there wasn't any. Because that was my biggest fear is that, this video is going to go viral in the law enforcement community. <laughs> and here I am with this guy with this swinging elephant trunk, you know, in the Ross department store. And it was just, uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> oh my God. What a story. Oh yeah. yeah you don't see. see that in Richmond. Okay. <laughs> you know, you could have just led with that story. <laughs> Seriously. That's oh a whole nother episode. We'll save that's, that for That's a whole nother book. What are you talking yeah. about? Oh it my is. God. Is. That is hilarious priceless okay what are two books you'd recommend to our listeners and why number one obviously your book oh without a doubt yeah. i mean you know I'll, I'll be honest with you like this book um it's been out i think for like close to 30 weeks and it was a bestseller for over 20 weeks already has 263 reviews and everyone that's read this says they can't put it down and it looks intimidating but you can read this in six hours and I don't know if people know who Lieutenant Dave Grossman is, but he wrote the forward for this book. And this guy is a legend. He's literally written 11 books. He's been speaking for like 30 years. And he, one of his books is the other book I would actually recommend, um, On Killing. And I believe it's out on Audible now, but it's a phenomenal book. And the other one besides that, which is totally different, is The Body Keeps the Score. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And I actually just read that recently because I was in a year-long program for PTS uh, through Mission 22, and we had required reading, and that was one of the books. And that really just really educates you on the you know, physical symptoms and causation of post-traumatic stress and what it does to you. So, And that book's for anybody and everybody. 
you know, not just first responders, not military. That book is for everybody. Chelsea and I have both tried to read it. We're both having like just it's so big. Well, you got to do the Audible. I I did it on Audible, so I I strongly recommend that book on Audible, and I think you'll find it a, a much better experience. All right, I think I have it on Audible. I have to look. Just yeah, it was overwhelming for me. I have um, a weird, I have a weird thing with all like yeah, Audible, it puts you to sleep. Podcast. yeah, it puts me yeah. to sleep. So I can't. <laughs> so I literally have to read it, and like I I guess I'm just like not in the headspace yet, but eventually yeah. I'll get there. I've read like the first chapter, so we'll get there. Well, I was my, just gonna ask Audrey to finish it yet. We'll get that book for sure. Oh, Where, that for sure. Yeah, you will not be able to put it down. I I in fact I guarantee it. Guarantee it. I love it. Okay. If you could say anything you wanted to a chief, what would you say? I would say stop worrying about your chiefly image. Stop worrying about looking perfect and, you know, having these stars and impressing people and worried about the next agency you're going to go to and how many people can you command. But you need to worry about your people and you need to lead by example. And the most important thing any leader can do at any level is to be true to yourself and to be vulnerable to be open with your people and to lead with that because your people will not be vulnerable and open with you if you're not willing to do it first. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Love that. What do you like on your turkey sandwiches? Do you eat turkey? I love turkey, but it's gotta be white meat and I don't do the skin. So yes, you got, you gotta have turkey. So of course stuffing and here's the deal and people may disagree with this. You know, I've had tons of homemade stuffing, but I'm going to tell you right now, stovetop is where it's at. So stovetop mashed potatoes and gravy on turkey with sliced toasted sourdough. That's the turkey sandwich right there. It's no matter how many times I make stuffing, my kids always ask for a stovetop. I'm like, yes. are you serious? Yes, exactly. Okay. Have you had cornbread stuffing? I have. I, I've had every kind of stuffing imaginable. And I've seen people spend eight hours on it and leave the sourdough out and let it get hard and tear it by hand. And like, you know what? Forget all that. Put the stovetop in there, <laughs> mix the water, cook it up. It is the best <laughs> stuffing there is. <laughs> Michael's a simple man. Okay. We're going to start the next Twitter war over stuffing. Over because stuffing. Yeah, it was fruit on pizza before. Now it's generic stuffing versus homemade stuffing. It's got to be stovetop though. No, no oh, yeah, knockoffs. No other brands. It's got to be stovetop. Not shake and right. bake. No. Ew. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Stove top. It. Got it. Check, check. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Audra, was that the last hot seat question? Ooh, I'm, sw- I'm sweating now. God. See? <laughs> this is like bringing back that Ross department store call. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm back in it. Everybody's watching. Yeah. All right. I love it. Well, this has been both entertaining and educational and deep and we are so thankful that you are on the podcast with us today so if you want to learn more about michael and his work you can follow him on social media i would suggest doing a search but we'll also put all of the links in the show notes also you can find his book relentless courage it's only on amazon it's only on amazon it's only on amazon we are self-published so it's on kindle but it's amazon either paperback hardcover or kindle that's it Nowhere else, only Amazon. Oh, wow. But okay, so only on Amazon and on the website, right? You have a website. Uh, Doc Springer has a website which links to the book, but that that just takes you to Amazon. So now, 
Now, to be fair, I've Googled a book and there's some bootleg like booksellers out there that sell it way over retail and we don't, we don't have any control over that, but the legit way to buy it is through Amazon. Cool. All right. We'll put the link in the show notes for it for Amazon too. Um, all right. So for our listeners, if you like the show today and want to keep hearing from us, please consider leaving a rating review on any and all of your favorite listening apps, more specifically Apple podcast reviews, help us gain more listeners and find more awesome guests like Michael. So if you have a few moments, please leave a positive review there. And I think that's it. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Find us on social media at Dear Chiefs Podcast and online at dearchiefs.com. Tune in weekly for the 25,000 foot view of loving a first responder. Audra and Chelsea, over and out. (laughs) 